time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to week three of Nolan Month here on the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Aaron, and here with me is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. What's up? How are you doing, Patch? Man, I'm good. I am uh, anxious to talk about tonight's movie in particular. Wow. Uh, more, just more than, you know, just more than I normally would. I think I've, I've got a lot to say. I've got a lot to hopefully hear from you, and I'm just I'm excited. Good. Well, we are currently working our way through Christopher Nolan's filmography, and for this week's episode, we get to talk about what is arguably the greatest comic book film of all time, The Dark Knight. This incredible movie gives us a wealth of topics to discuss, from the acting to the cinematography to the characters to the tough moral predicaments we find them wrestling with. We may not be the podcast you deserve, but we will try to be the podcast that you need right now. And hopefully we won't make this podcast burn like the world. Oh, yes. Yes. Hopefully we can avoid that. So what have you been up to, man? Have you been uh, doing anything else this week other than watching The Dark Knight again, getting ready for this show? (laughs) Well, my job has been keeping me quite busy. I've been uh, having to work a little bit more than I wanted to. I worked a few hours on Saturday and a few hours on Sunday, but uh, it's good to be caught up on that kind of stuff. And actually... um, what I was going to talk about has to do with that indirectly a little bit. I've been reading a book. Um, I picked up several uh, before the year started that I was interested in and said, hey, 2017 sounds like a good year to to read these. And it's a book by um, a guy named Scott Adams. He is known most famously for his comic Dilbert. And it popped up in my, hey, you should read this because you picked this other book out. And it's called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, colon, kind of the story of my life. And it's a, you could call it a self-help book, you could call it a career advice book, but, and it is those things in some way, shape, or form, but more than anything, it's kind of a a casual man's, a, a man's casual look at how he functions as a, quote, successful uh, professional in his in his uh, his career as a, as a cartoonist, and it's really it's really been encouraging. He's he talks about just different things that he does in his life, ways in which he maintains balance, using systems as opposed to goals to help kind of succeed in the things, and more than anything, to be okay with failing at tons of stuff, to take risks and things like that. So it's kind of an inspirational read, but at the same time, it's a lot of uh, entertaining stories that that he's telling. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've I've actually taken some of his quote advice and applied it to uh, to my job and to circumstances around me, like with my family and with um, just other other things that um, that can be good challenges to have, like how to be a better husband, how to be a better dad, how to be a better you know podcaster, that kind of thing. And I've been, like I said, really encouraged by what I've been reading. Yeah, in particular about how to just, you know, his main point of just being free to take risks and 
uh, risk failing because those failures lead to opportunities. And, and you know, it, it, it sounds a bit cliched and, and, and some of it is, but because it's wrapped up in this entertaining package, I've really enjoyed reading it. So I, that's been occupying most of my evenings when I'm not uh, hanging out with the family or catching up on other things is, uh, is reading my latest book, how to fail at almost everything and still win big. <laughs> nice. Well, well, cartooning is a risk, Patrick. You risk being ridiculed. You really do risk being ridiculed. <laughs> but so is rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting this week. I, I have, I'm, we're going to swap roles once again. I know we've done this before, but I'm going to talk quickly about a couple of documentaries that I've watched in the, the past week that have really you should you should really impacted me uh in a way that i was unexpecting is that a word? wait that if it's not if it, expected. yeah not not expected. that was yeah, unexpected know. there we go well if we're gonna switch roles then maybe i should have talked about la la land you can talk about, we can pause right now and just start talking about la la land <laughs> i just got out of my fifth final viewing uh this was my imax viewing i uh, took my daughter for the second time and she absolutely adored it it grew on her even more it was it was really phenomenal to be honest because this was the first time i've ever had my child talking to me on the way home saying well this time i was looking for this specific thing or i was focused on a different thing this time around because i knew what was going to happen so i was able i wanted to see you know were her friends in the movie more than i thought they were and i i learned some things and oh my goodness it was it was just like music to my ears, having this conversation with her on the way home was really, really neat. So fitting since you saw La La Land, a movie that has music in it, you know, and all that, that it was music to my ears. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even mean to do that one, but you're right. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I digress. I I could talk about La La Land, every podcast, as we all know. So (laughs) the, the two docs that I want to mention, one of them is called Gleason. And this is one that I knew about uh, earlier this past year in 2016. Didn't get a chance to catch up with. It's the story of a former NFL player named Steve Gleason. He played for the New Orleans Saints. And before that, I believe he played here locally uh, for the Washington State Cougars. Um, Steve is a, a man, a young man, really. He's in his 30s, I believe, when this happened. He, gets, he ends up quitting football, uh, and he gets diagnosed with ALS. And this is not a disease that I know anything about or I did not know anything about going into this doc so I learned a lot from it Um, and it was shot in a very interesting way because Steve pretty much decided early on that he wanted to document his journey with this disease and through this battle Um, when he's diagnosed I don't know if it's right after he gets diagnosed or it's already happened when he gets gets diagnosed right at the beginning but they find out he and his wife find out that they're pregnant so it's, I mean, a whammy, you know, like, hey, I've got this disease and I'm diagnosis of living three to five years. And guess what? Here comes your baby. Um, so it was really, it was really hard to watch at times, just seeing him struggle to go through the daily motions um, and watching him struggle with his, his faith sometimes. I, I don't even know if I'd say he struggles with it, but watching him discuss his faith, his father and he have a uh, one big conversation where his dad is pushing him. His dad's like, come on, let's go to church. Come on. I need to get you healed. You need to let this happen. You need to get healed. You need to get healed. And Steve's saying, listen, um, I have faith. And at one point he actually has this very, very emotional outburst. And he says, I know that I'm saved. You need to stop questioning me <laughs> to his dad. Mm, and good. it is, that's dude, good. it is powerful. Um, and for, I mean, for 
you know, people who are, you know, believers of, of any faith that they believe in, that's something you don't want to be questioned about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it's your dad, I can only imagine how, how much harder that is, especially, you know, when you're the one with the dying or dying from a disease. So we get moments like that, but we also get these moments of where, you know, he's really just pushing his limits, uh, trying to get through daily life and enjoy it as much as he can and have these moments with his son. And then, you know, we get to see from the wife's perspective, how she's breaking down and, you know, the, the impact that this has on the entire family, the, the family members that help him every single day of his life. It's not just him that goes through this disease. They go through as a family. And that's one of the things I took away from it was how important that is for someone going through this situation. And so it's, it's a great documentary. I highly recommend it. Gleason. Uh, the other one was also kind of eye opening for me. And this one I just found out about recently. And this one is called life animated. And it's the story of a man, young man named Owen who is autistic and he has learned to communicate and view the world through the lens of Disney animated films. I don't want to go into too much, you know, depth here because it's really fascinating to watch how it all happens. But essentially, he is a child who's normal every day. And then one day he, as his parents say, he just disappears inside. And what they come to learn over the course of some time is that he is silently even though he's unable to communicate with them, he is memorizing every single line of dialogue from every single Disney movie that he watches on repeat, just every, all the Disney animated movies. And he, he finally starts to come out of his shell by using this dialogue to communicate. It's, it's phenomenal. And it is a heart, heart wrenching story, but, um, but it's hopeful because I mean, he's, he's doing very well now and we get to see his progression and how it has helped him. We get to see some of the the things that his family has done to help bring him along. And again, something very inspirational to me was the commitment of his family, that what they have to go through in raising a child with a disability or with special needs. And it's just, it's something that's very close to me because I have, uh, you know, family members and that are special educators and, and that are very, in, very close to this situation. Um, and so it made me even respect them more than, than I already had and, yeah, it's a g- g- great story. Uh, Life animated. I-, I think I found it for free. It's. I think they might both be on Amazon Prime right now, free for Amazon okay. Prime users. So, look those up if you're interested in either of those docs. I am. Those are those are really fantastic. I remember you telling me offline about Gleason, but um, this is the first time hearing about Life animated. That that sounds really good. Yeah, and it's it's a shorter one too. It's like an under an hour and a half, kind of the the really good length for a documentary that you, you can, cause you can squeeze those in sometimes when you don't have time to sit down for a full, like two hour length movie. Uh, the other thing though, that I wanted to bring up briefly somewhat ties into our episode today. And that is Pan's Labyrinth. And I know everybody listening is going like, huh, what, how does, how exactly does Pan's Labyrinth tie into the dark Knight? Well, I bought the Criterion Collection disc for Pan's Labyrinth. Um, this is becoming an addiction quickly. It's now my second Criterion disc, and I want them all. But we sat down this weekend, and I decided to introduce my kids to it. The kids are almost 12 and 13, and I'll be honest, I had forgotten about a few scenes in this film <laughs> that 
<laughs> in hindsight, uh, perhaps I might not have uh, put my children through seeing. Uh, there are some pretty brutal, violent deaths <laughs> in this movie. Not a lot, but there's a couple of them where it's just like, oh, 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 guys, don't watch that. But the fairy tale aspect of this story is what was I wanted them to experience, and they really enjoyed it. They really enjoyed the movie and the story. And I was watching an interview with Guillermo, 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 whatever, Del Toro. I can't say his first name very well. Uh, at the end of this film and in it he was talking about the ending of this movie and I won't say exactly what happens at the end but he says the ending of his film is not about him as a creator and what he thinks happened the ending is meant to reveal something about the viewer to themselves he said what you believe happened at the end of this film tells you something about yourself and i thought that was brilliant um and a lot of times you'll hear film criticism people say well i don't like this ending because it didn't give me xyz feeling it did not do what i thought it should do and they chose the wrong ending when in reality maybe maybe we should stop looking at it like that as the storyteller choosing the wrong ending and maybe we need to start looking at why do we want the ending that we are desiring what is the reason behind that and evaluate that and it made me think about our conversation that we're going to have here tonight uh, around the dark night because there are several moments in this film where this same concept can be applied from there are several scenes several several decisions that have to be made whether it be by batman or by citizens of gotham what you believe should have happened in those situations tells you something about yourself more than the decision that we actually see on screen. And so I just want to frame that and put that out there for everyone as a, as a kind of learning point, something that I've been chewing on this weekend and I'm going to try and take forward with me as I watch more movies. Fantastic, man. I like that. I like it. I like it when movies inspire us like that. So speaking of inspirational movies, how about we start with tonight's, inspirational movie getting right into the dark night what do you think i think we should i think we should we are going to spoil the heck out of this uh and i want to tell you guys up front we are going to be talking with probably with bits and pieces of batman begins and the dark knight rises at times so fair warning we're assuming by now most of you have seen this entire trilogy yeah, there should be there should be a statute of limitations on spoiler stuff. I think it's like a year, right? Yeah, I I think a year is fair. Uh, definitely yeah. more than however long this has been, almost probably five years or something at this point. I think yeah, two thousand eight was when it came out, I believe. This one did right, so Dark Knight yes. Rises would have been like ten, uh, twenty twelve actually, or twelve. So yeah, so about five years for the whole trilogy. So yeah, yeah. no excuses, but you're warned <laughs> anyway. Um, if you haven't seen them, please turn us off because we are going to spoil the heck out of it. Come back, listen to us after that. But Patrick, now that we're ready to go, I know that you have probably been really looking forward to this as well because of all of the impressions that you'll get to do, and you've already given us one. (laughs) But because of that, I guess, just go ahead and you can take us away. Well, as my friend Morgan Freeman would say, it is a masterpiece of cinema storytelling. That's probably the best you're going to get from a from a uh, Morgan Freeman impression. So I'm just going to leave that at the door and take it for what – you want. Um, 
The the movie is phenomenal. I was so glad that I hadn't seen this since probably 2010 or 2012 when The Dark Knight Rises came out because um, I didn't I didn't want to revisit it. I had no reason to revisit it until this podcast. So seeing it again took me back to just being in awe of of what a good movie, a great movie should be. But on top of that, a great superhero movie. And I remember my experience in the theater. And there are a few times when I walk out of a theater and remember what I say out loud because of something that's impacted me. And I remember saying, wow, I don't know that I've ever been more scared of a villain in my whole life. Like, I've never seen a portrayal of a villain in such a grounded, realistic way. I know. That and Chinese to... businessman is just <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> well, I was talking about the third goon in the opening sequence. Oh, I think the yeah. one that he, yeah, he, he really pre- he really brings out the fear in me too. <laughs> but from that moment and thinking about the movie as a whole, it it really elevated the movie to a place of of just epic proportions for me and i remember going how how do you top that (laughs) i mean how do you how do you you're not going to make another movie with batman right i mean surely if you do it's going to have Heath ledger in it because you can't not have this type of movie and follow it up with without that and i was so sad when uh when i found out that he when he passed away and i think it was um I think there was a thing popping up on on social media that it was some kind of anniversary that he passed away like I don't know ten years ago or eleven years ago I can't remember but um, less than like nine years ago I can't remember but anyway I digress it watching this again just reminded me of how much I enjoyed it and how the rewatchability factor of it is just so high for me mm-hmm. and just I, I can understand why people elevate this one above the other two and it's not because the other two are bad it's because you watch this movie and not having seen the first one and not necessarily having seen the last one recently it's a standalone story like you don't have to know what happened in the first one you don't really care what happens in the third one on its own it could have lived by itself and still been incredible and that's that's a big feat to accomplish as a director and a writer and a creative team. And um, I had a great experience with it this time around. Well, I can't agree with you more. I you know it. I think I've watched it more recently than that, but it's been a couple years for me. And it's interesting that you mentioned how well it stands alone on its own as a as a solo film, and I, I can totally see that. However, I watched this uh, for this particular podcast episode. I watched the entire trilogy back to back to back. Well, I watched two in one night and the next the next morning. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever done that with this set of three movies. And I got to see some interconnected tissue through the three that I didn't really realize was there. I'd never done this before. You know, I'd, I'd watched Batman Begins plenty of times, but always on its own I'd watch dark Knight, but always on its own. I'd watch dark Knight rises a couple times, but always on its own. I'd never strung them together and really follow the narrative threads. And I mean, there's things I picked up on 
all throughout things like different actors, of course, not just Rachel uh, being changed, but Falcone changes actors as well between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. And just some very subtle things uh, that are referenced in in one film that end up kind of coming back in another film later on. So I think that's very special that it can be such a great cog inside of a three-piece trilogy, but yet also stand alone. I mean, it, it just elevates it even further in my book. Right, right. And I think what it does uh, in terms of big storytelling, and I, I love what authors can do. Uh, there's a guy named Ted Decker who has written uh, what he calls a circle series, and it's four books that I believe can be read in any order. And the overall cohesive story makes sense because of the way that in which he tells the stories individually. It's it's on my to-read list at some point because of that. But I think Chris Nolan does the same thing here, that he creates really great uh, single-arc stories within these three films, and there's still that interconnective tissue that elevates them. It's like you get payoffs in some small ways between the movies by having seen them all together. And it's, I mean, it's almost... Um, it's almost just rewarding to have seen all three equally as much as it is to see each individual one separately, you know, either on the, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I agree. And, and I just loved it. I mean, I, I had so much fun rewatching them. I just was really blown away by how good it was. I, I, I forgot, (laughs) I guess, um, you know, we get caught up in the hype sometimes and, you know, we Mm -hmm. had Batman V Superman come out last year. And so, we got our new Batman, and I liked Batfleck a lot. I was I was very fond of him and his performance in that, and I'm excited about the future of this Batman that we we have now. But mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because people tend to immediately want to say, well, okay, well, he's the best Batman, or, or this is the best Batman version because he's more detective-like. And I got to tell you, after you sit down and you rewatch this trilogy, <laughs> it's – pretty hard for me to come back and land on that and and it, mm-hmm. it makes me feel like well i got a little caught up in the hype uh and maybe some other people did too because we are really underselling how great this trilogy and, and specifically this movie the dark knight is mm-hmm. um and in its depiction of batman and gotham and everything around it the the other thing that i really noticed in this time viewing though is how little the Joker is in this. <laughs> and I, mm, I don't, I mean, yeah. I, I say that I would say if it would be interesting to know from an honest, like screen time number, how, how much time his scenes take, because I felt watching this, like maybe he was in like a fifth of the movie, maybe a fourth, the most, which is pretty interesting for him being the main villain uh, this there's a lot that goes on in this story that's not directly showing and related to the joker himself and that was mm-hmm. that was very uh, a, a shock to me i wasn't expecting that yeah i think the other thing that makes this movie and the trilogy as a whole but specifically this movie so just very good is that it feels very grounded like when we think of superhero movies we think of High flying. I mean, I'm a Superman fan through and through, and so that's what I expect. I expect flying and supernatural stuff and overwearing powers, and and that's not who Batman is. Batman's a detective first and foremost, and he's a superhero because he has to be. 
he's a superhero. And as we will get into this discussion, he's a superhero, um, not by choice, but because, because of almost an obligation to an extent. And I love what Chris Nolan does here because that, op- for, you know, the opening sequence, which I actually watched twice, I, you know, when I watched the movie, I wanted to go back and watch that opening sequence again, because it's just amazing. Yeah. I wrote down that opening sequence though. <laughs> and it, and what, what made it great for me, what I really enjoyed about it was that you're watching this. If you didn't know this was a Batman movie, you would have thought this was a crime thriller. You know, you would have thought this was like a phenomenal insomnia. heist flick. Exactly. Because that's a great heist. Uh, that was a great heist. I mean, it was just very well thought out and everything. There were things about it that felt so unconventional in the midst of that convention. Like the fact that each person was shooting the person uh, ahead of them and that your introduction to the Joker was very nonchalant. Like he just, you know, just blatantly shoots people. I mean, there's not like a dramatic, like I'm going to kill you and bang, you know, it was just like, you know, he's done, you know, whatever. And so all of these things that kind of introduce you to the tone of the movie, I think Chris Nolan was saying this could actually exist. Mm -hmm. This guy could exist in a major metropolitan city and what we're going to talk about, what we're going to explore are ideas that I believe my audience will connect with. And he left no doubt with me that he did. <laughs> I connected with a number of the themes that were going on in this movie. And it all started with that opening heist sequence. Well, yeah, I agree. And that's that was also something that I was going to mention about the three. And there's not a lot that I want to talk about with all three. But I noticed this time around how all three of these movies start with an amazing opening sequence of some kind. The first film starts with, or Batman Begins starts with, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne training uh, with Ra's al Ghul. Like that's all that's your whole opening sequences are revol- or revolving around that. The, this one has the heist. The third one has the plane extraction with Bane, which is incredible as well. But this one is the best. I mean, it is I, no question really to me that this is the best of them. Um, and it's probably the best action sequence in the entire trilogy. If, if for my money, I mean, I don't know what you would think if something else stands up or stands out to you. But for me, I think that this opening sequence is the best that we have in the entire trilogy. I would agree. And I think it has to do with the fact that it's very grounded, very organic. I, I would I would hope if I go back and watch special features or look at backstory that I will read that none of what I saw was CG, that it was all like practical effects because right. to me that makes it more real. That makes it more grounded. You mentioned the first sequence of both Batman Begins and the Dark Knight. Both of those were very surreal, very cool, very much got you into the movie. But this one felt very different because it was familiar to an audience that knew that from other movies that were not necessarily superhero based. And, uh, and I love that, that no one set you up for that. Yeah, and it also doesn't have Batman. I mean, that's <laughs> like that's something that stands out to me. This is to me when we're talking about this is the best action sequence of this entire amazing trilogy. It doesn't have Batman. He's not in it. Like, wow, I mean, that's pretty powerful. It's just it is such a phenomenal design. Um, you already mentioned you took a couple things I was going to mention with the Joker, the way he shoots people. It it mm-hmm. really was something that stuck out to me this time. He never he doesn't even look at them. Like he doesn't even look at the direction. He just 
raises his arm and and I mean it is wrist is kind of floppy like the gun just takes it where it takes it like oh, yeah. there's no there's no regard for feeling about what he's doing mm-hmm. um and that inter team killing that is taking place in that whole amazing way it it like instantaneously puts you in this space of understanding the chaos that is the joker like this mm-hmm. is what he's going to create you know and then of course rolling it out into the school bus line. I mean, it's just, it's just brilliant from start to finish. I I love, absolutely love, love, love it. (laughs) So one of the things that I began to pick up on this time around was this overarching theme of a morality, morality, right versus wrong. And this exploration of all these characters. And I I don't know that we're going to have time to necessarily explore all of them, but, um, did was that a theme that, that you picked up pretty, pretty, uh, potently the first time or even now, is that something that you, uh, that you, that you, that you resonated with and something that you, that you connected with was the the overall theme between the characters and, and dealing with this idea of what morality is. So what it is for each of them, is that what you're kind of getting at? Where are you talking about like where Harvey's idea of morality is? Right. Yeah. Choice versus versus yeah versus Bruce versus Joker versus you know Alfred versus you know Lucius and that kind of thing and this exploration of how they view ethical dilemmas that they're all in because I I feel like all these guys all these characters most of them are faced with some kind of ethical dilemma of some kind um, and and that's that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about this particular one is that I don't think I don't think Chris Nolan ever cheapened any of the characters in here. Like, I don't think he ever had throwaway characters. All of our main people, um, you know, Bruce, Joker, Harvey, Alfred, Rachel, Gordon, Lucius, all of those, that main crew of people, they all had substantial um, connective tissue with with the audience in some way, shape, or form. Like, I think I could, at some point, I could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that with Rachel, or I get that with Bruce, or, yeah, I in some weird twist, you know, twisted way, I get what the Joker's doing there. Um, not that I necessarily agree with all of them, but I think there's some real cool factor that, that Nolan brings to the table when he's able to bring that out of all these characters and allow them to connect to an audience. Yeah, I agree. I think that it allows you to, it allows you to start processing things in your mind because it, you're now you're pulled into the story when you have to consider what you would do in a certain situation mm-hmm. and you know, there's big ones that we're going to talk about. Um, but there's little ones. There's, there's things like you're talking about how everyone has these ethical dilemmas. And I, so now that I, now I'm on track with you. I mean, Alfred has one. Alfred mm-hmm. has to decide between his lifelong servitude and love and, and taking care of Bruce versus what he believes to be a mission to get himself killed. Like, you know, and Alfred has to kind of play that game. We, we, we see Fox. Is it Fox? It's Fox, right? Uh, Morgan Freeman's yeah. character. Um, yeah, you know, with the Fox. whole, the whole cell phone issue for Lucius is a big deal. You know, he doesn't want to use this technology to invade privacy. And Bruce is saying, no, this is a matter of saving lives. So we need to use this technology to invade privacy in order to save mm-hmm. lives. I mean, this is, this is real world stuff that, that we're talking about here. Um, that we have to deal with in our lives that we have to, that we have these conversations. And so here yeah. we're seeing it with superheroes and it's, right. and that's, what's really phenomenal. Um, I like, 
I mean, there's the classic line, and that, and that ties into this with Alfred saying, "Some men aren't logical; they can't be bought or reasoned with. Some men just want to watch the world burn." And yeah. it's really so harrowing and so hard to swallow. I mean, we we kind of we joke about it a lot. This gets reused and quoted so often that it almost loses some of its power. But if you if you step back and you think about it, gosh, I mean, this is this is what happened. This this quote is talking about your school shootings, your your terror bombings, you know, real life stuff. These people exist like you were talking about earlier with the Joker trying to make him make him something the audience could relate to and say this this guy could really be in your town or in your city, unfortunately. Um, and I, and I think that that is one of the biggest reasons why this whole story is elevated, uh, in a way that other comic book movies haven't necessarily achieved yet. Yeah. It's an exploration of something that is very close to humanity. Um, and within it, I think the beauty of this film is that it explores the rawness of humanity and the flaws of humanity with a hint of hope. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the movie, and it's a movie that I, it's, it's, a, it's a moment that Harvey Dent says, you know, that the night is darkest before the dawn. You know, he admits that, you know, the, the, the Gotham people, the, the press, whoever, they're drinking the Joker's Kool-Aid and they're saying, you know, we were better off without Batman. You know, Batman's presence has made it worse, which could be conceived as true, but at the same time, maybe not. And I love that Harvey doesn't mince words. He says, you're right. It's bad. It's really bad. But the night is darkest before the dawn. And I, the, the thing is, I connected most with his character um, and had a lot of sympathy and sadness for how his character, knowing what he was going to become, I mean, notwithstanding, um, the fact that he sees hope in this, and the fact that he inspires Batman, I think is something uh, to be to be valued. That here's an ordinary guy, the White Knight, as as uh, Batman calls him, uh, you know, encouraging and lifting up the the dark knight <laughs> and and i i just you know his arc that's great on imagery. its own his yeah his arc on its own is enough to to merit um a really a, a great story and uh and and so aaron eckhart just he owned that role as harvey dent and i just i love that he carried that sense of hope with him because i think that's the essence of the dc world is that it is a dark world, but there's hope that's embedded in it somewhere. And we just have to find it. It's, and it's found through great storytelling. And I'd hope to believe that, that that's what Chris Nolan was, was getting towards as he, as he was moving the story along. And I felt some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I would agree uh, that Harvey is a, a very special character and so well, well moved or, well written in this this story um it was also one of the most unexpected things about this movie i think for a lot of us you know we we saw the scarecrow in the first one we saw we knew the joker was coming in this you know that that was like our our ex- expectation was we we weren't blown away by a crazy joker well 
We were blown away by the way that he was played, but we weren't blown away by the idea of a crazy Joker. We were kind of blown away by the the portrayal we got of Harvey Dent, um, and how much you like you said we connect to him. How much you know we end up rooting for him, almost over Batman. <laughs> you know his his methods are um, kind of so true and so good. It's like gosh, you know you you understand why they go after him. You understand why they feel that if they can corrupt this one guy, um, then everything will fall apart. And it's interesting because that's usually the role reserved for Batman in the comics. A lot of times it's Batman. That's supposed to be the incorruptible. It's Batman that doesn't quote unquote kill, but it's really about so much more than does he kill or not. Mm-hmm. when it comes down to the decision-making process. Um, and so, yeah, watching watching Harvey's fall is actually very painful <laughs> and hard uh, mm-hmm. because you just don't want it to happen. And, and it makes sense then when, you know, Batman goes to save him, which I, I can't even, I mean, that was one of the questions I, I would almost ask you, but I don't know that I want to ask you because it's not fair, is <laughs> like, who do you, who do you choose, right? Yeah. Do you choose your wife or do you choose Harvey Dent? What do mm. we do in that situation? Uh, Batman had to make a choice. I mean, what do we do? What What do we actually do? And and I have no earthly idea what I would do. I would probably stall and be so overcome with the heavy weight of having to make that choice that I probably would. They'd probably both die, to be honest with you, if I was the one having to make it. And I think that that's something that's very interesting that I noticed about Batman's character in this, this watch was that he doesn't hesitate. He immediately gets on his bat cycle and goes, and we don't know where he's going right away, but he goes, he, he, despite the, the difficulty of having to make that choice, he makes the decision and he goes, and we see it again when the Joker is holding Rachel out the window. It's also a great writing exercise too, by the way, in dialogue, (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, let her go. And Joker's just like, very poor choice of words. <laughs> That's and, a good Joker. And, good Joker and I'm like, like, I'm like yeah, you're right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're right. It is a very poor choice of words. And he just, and again, no hesitation. Joker, boop, drop. No thought, no drama, mm-hmm. no speech. But what we see Bruce do is he jumps. He runs and he dives. He has no idea what he's going to do. He's not in his Batman suit. Yes, he is. Or he is in his Batman suit. I'm sorry. He's he's in his Batman suit, but he's not he doesn't have his his uh full assortment of gadgets with him. So he's not prepared, I guess is what my point is. Is he's he instantaneously has to make that decision to jump out the window and slide down with her and just figure it out in midair what he's gonna mm-hmm. do to hopefully stay alive. And I, I love that about him, and that's what I noticed this time around, was that constant instantaneous decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked it, I think even more because when I rewatched the dark Knight rises afterwards, there's, he actually talks about how one of the reasons he feels that he can't do this anymore is because he hesitates. And, you know, we've already seen how successful he is because he doesn't hesitate. Mm-hmm. So I just love how that's written. Yeah. Chris Nolan has a great way of creating tension in his films and I think that's one of the threads that I'm seeing through these first three 
is asking the questions that are hard to answer as an audience. And he does that in Memento. He did it in Insomnia, and he's doing it here in The Dark Knight, particularly with that question, because we're all asking that. Who would we save? Would we save Harvey or would we save Rachel? And I can't remember. Correct me if I'm wrong if you if you remember this for sure, but did he think he was going after Rachel and he ended up finding Harvey? Were they both in the same building? I can't remember specifically. Um, no, he but he goes after Harvey. He goes after Harvey specifically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Because so he knows reason. he knows that Harvey is more meaningful to the to Gotham. Okay. While Rachel okay. is more meaningful to him. Right. But I think up to that point, as an audience, where we don't because we don't know where he's going until he finally you know goes in, you know we're left with that tension all the way up to that point, and then we're asking the question. Did he make the right choice? Yep. Because we know his history with Rachel. And, um, you know, it's still a question, even after the fact. Would we, if we were him, knowing exactly what he knew, would we make that same choice? And I love that it's ambiguous for us. I, I love that it can create coffee conversations afterwards that say, well, what would you do? You know, why would you choose her over him or why would you choose him over her? What's the what's the big picture value of it as a as a superhero that what you're trying to do? And like his other films, I think Chris Nolan says, I want conversation to happen after this because these are important things to talk about. I'd like to believe that just like Harvey Dent, uh, Chris, Chris Nolan cares about how the world works and he cares about the fact that everybody has a moral compass and those that don't are really living in a sad state that who do just want to watch the world burn that that it's that's a sad and dangerous place to be and it's not the life that anybody wants to live um so i i that's my hope as a as an audience and someone who knows you know this you know i'm holding up my little fingers uh, this much about chris nolan and his you know his his story but mm-hmm. i'd like to think that because we write what we know, because we, we, you know, we, we write these stories that we're familiar with, that that's something that he aspires to as a, as a person and uh, as a storyteller. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like it. Um, you know, one of the other things that ties into that too is that we're talking about with the, the choice and you, this came to mind again when you brought up the quote of some men just watch, wanting to watch the world burn, but the Joker lives and thrives on the idea of, you know, corrupting the incorruptible or challenging the selfishness of the world. Um, and making people, like you said, making people put the, putting people in these positions to make these choices that, um, are very difficult for them. And so, you know, at one point Harvey Dent before, he dies because <laughs> he couldn't say this after he dies. Um, <laughs> he says, uh, he says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And that line of dialogue really struck me this time around. I had not, I don't think ever considered that before. It just kind of was part of the story. It just kind of went, went past me, but it really lingered this time and I, I've considered that, you know, you die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And the idea of this being, I think that if you fight the good fight long enough, you're eventually going to go too far and compromise your morals or compromise your, 
your ethics in order to fight the good fight, which is what we saw in Insomnia, right? This is exactly what we see in Insomnia. We see yeah. a hero who is completely right in what he wants to accomplish, but he lives long enough that ultimately it overtakes him. He becomes the villain. Mm-hmm. He lies. He, he, he plans evidence. He ends up killing his partner, whether it be on purpose or not. Um, and so here we see it again. Uh, with Harvey Dent. And so I just wondered if you had picked up on that line this time around or, or had any yeah. thoughts on that. Oh, I did, man. And, and I, <laughs> I was thinking in a, in a similar vein, and you may be hitting on this kind of as a, you know, on a, on a fringe kind of idea, but when he says that it reminded, it, it made me think of the fact that, you know, we die heroes or we live long enough to become the villain in that we are susceptible to that corruption. We become so tired or so, jaded about the world around us that we lose our sense our we lose that compass of saying why are we fighting why are we being this way and to me i think that ties into this idea of you know being a hero almost brings about the sense of we have no flaws i say we i'm not a hero but i'm saying that a you're hero, my hero <laughs> did you ever know that that you're my hero <laughs> <laughs> You are the wind beneath my wings. That's for you, Reed Lackey. That's (laughs) ooh. Okay, okay. Focus, right? (laughs) So I was thinking about that line coupled with, um, with uh, with Alfred's line. He goes, "He's not being a hero. He's being something more." And the um. And the fact that, you know, when he says that to Rachel, you know, she's very jaded. She's like, yeah, he totally didn't take the fall. Like he, he let Harvey take the fall. But what I think Alfred was saying in that instance was that he said being something more means he's not trying, he, he's not aspiring for perfection. He's not aspiring for, I'm going to represent everything that's good. He says, I'm going to be the best that I can, knowing that I live in a world that's going to potentially hurt me and potentially help you know potentially compromise some of my convictions and to me i think that's what a real i think that's what means going beyond being a hero it means someone who strives to find the best in the world around them find the best in the people knowing that there's always going to be the opportunity to be uh corruptible and to to respond to it in a way that is noble that is moral that is ethical and um you know, how that looks might be different for different people. And that's an exploration that, that happens in this movie is what does it mean to be ethical mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and how people question that. Yeah. And also wh- what does it mean to live in a world without rules? Mm. And, and can we, because you know, the Joker's, this is almost like the opposite of this, but the Joker's entire worldview is built around the idea of this chaos and this, you know, just everything there is, there are no rules. Everybody just does whatever they want. It's a selfish world and, and people make choices based on themselves. Um, and that's really what he kind of wants to see happen is just everything go nutso with no rules. But is that even possible? Can, can that be possible? Or, you know, are there always some rules, even if there's no, uh, rules that are in place for all of us that we're all subscribing to, 
will there always be a subset of people that have rules <laughs> and will rules grow out of that culture or out of that yeah. society? Yeah. I, I'd like to think that no matter how far we get away from like the rules of the world around us, I think even the antithesis of those rules are rules that we create for ourselves. Like mm-hmm. if I choose, if I say that if the world says killing is wrong and then I go the opposite of that, then my rule is when it comes to killing, I'm always going to, you know, and, and that's an extreme way to look at it. I'm not necessarily saying that's the way people think it might be, but I think that, and it's not that black and white. I mean, there's a lot of gray area, but I think that everybody has a set of criteria that they, they follow. I think even in some weird and twist, tw- twisted, sick way, the Joker does that. I think he has his own set of rules. They just don't exist on any, you know, sane level of normal human, you know, human ethics or morality. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. So I have another question for you. Um, okay. since we're still talking all these, this moral and ethical dilemmas, does, do you, is, I just want your opinion and then, uh, we can talk about, maybe I'll give you mine too, but do you think that Batman's presence does more good or bad? So does he bring bigger and badder criminals when otherwise without him, there would only be a lower level of criminal that would be more manageable by a non superhero, uh, police force. That's not fair. You shouldn't ask hard questions on a podcast where we're trying to have fun. (laughs) Oh, now we're (laughs) trying to have fun. Okay. Well, this one had had really good explosions. Bang, boom, pow. They were awesome. Um, I would say it's hard to tell. And again, I think it's supposed to be that ambiguous, but I think that the Joker understands that that idea and the conflict of that idea which is why i think he plays into that with with batman and um i think that i mean if there's a i would say i think there's probably a level of of corruption or a level of tragedy or whatever that maybe gets elevated with batman's presence but you kind of have to give and take with that because he's also done a lot of good and you know, it's, it's, (laughs) you you have to believe in the big picture with him. I think, I think you have to say, Hey, look, maybe right now it's bad, but ultimately the, the bigger thing that he's doing is a good thing or his presence here is ultimately a good thing. And having to believe in the long term and the big picture idea, I think that's what, that's where the hope comes from for the people of Gotham is that he's ultimately doing something from a good standpoint. And right now it might be bad, but maybe in the, in the grand scheme of things, uh, they have to believe that it's going to cause good. Well, let me, let me throw it to you like this. Batman's the nuclear missile in America. He's being used as the deterrent for bigger, badder attacks. So what happens? The rest of the world tries to get their own nuclear missiles, their own arsenal, to compete with the deterrent that's in place. So if America never has the nuclear missile, does the rest of the world ever need nuclear missiles? I, and <sighs> I, I, I know. Stop making me think. I, I know. Think. <laughs> I know. And, and, and it's an impossible question to answer because it's, 
we don't know what would happen in an alternate history. Um, but it's one of those things that I love about this film and I love about Nolan and going through his filmography like this and just picking up on it movie after movie that he gives me these things to consider. And, and you know what, honest to goodness, sometimes I'll watch this and I probably would tell you Batman absolutely does more good than bad. Another day I might watch this and I might say, dude, he needs to go because he's causing too many problems. Um, it's just crazy. It absolutely is. And it's a tough dilemma to, to have to wrestle with, but I would agree with you. I think that he does more good than harm in that case. All right. So we've been doing big time consideration of these, these ethical and moral dilemmas, but one of the things that's really fun or, or kind of neat about this one that doesn't make my head hurt too much, uh, at least not in the same way is the idea of the Joker's identity. And I, I just wondered if you, what you thought about this, we get all these different stories. I think we get like three different stories uh, revolving around the Joker's past. And they're all slightly different about how he, he got his scars. So we never, we never get a true identity and confirmation of how this Joker became what he is. And I think it's brilliant. I think it works so well uh, in this film and for this Joker to not know. And I think it, speaks to the chaos that is the Joker's mind that he doesn't even maybe know himself (laughs) at this point or that he's not willing to let it be known. You know, it's, 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 it's more chaos. Like everything coming out of his mouth, even him trying to tell a story about the past is chaos. It's always different. It's always crazy. And it made me wonder what it would have been like because I mean, the way that this performance went down, you got to believe the Joker would have probably, you would have seen Heath Ledger end up with a Joker solo film that would have probably delved into some backstory or who knows where it would have gone. And okay, this is going to sound, I got to word this carefully. (laughs) I'm glad that this film does not continue forward with the Joker. I'm not glad about why, it had to have that choice made, but I'm glad that he is a one shot in this movie and that we don't have him carrying forward movie after movie or even into the dark Knight rises. I think it's more special because he's confined with this chaos into this one unique film. So I, mm-hmm. that's kind of my thoughts around that. What, what do you think about his identity? Well, I think it's great that he didn't have a fleshed out like here's my backstory because it made him and his motives that much more both crazy and controlled at the same time the thing that i enjoyed most about his performance uh, you know concerning his backstory was how controlled he was when he even he looked controlled even in the midst of him holding the knife to you know someone's you know mouth or whatever and telling those stories there was a sense of controlled craziness that he had. And I really, a part of me felt bad, felt, felt very sad, sad for him because I, I would almost, the, by the end of the film, I would have, I, I really thought, you know, all those stories probably happened, you know, that he was a, you know, he was a, a victim of, of, uh, Child you know, domestic, you know, domestic abuse, you know, and having his mom getting beat up on by his dad and, 
and then later on having a um, having a marriage fall apart. But I think what really cinched it for me, there was a moment where he walks into. I think this moment really kind of solidified like how scary he was. It was when he walked into the uh, I guess it was the the kitchen where the mob gang was hanging out and they were trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with this bat guy or what do we do with the situation? And he starts talking and somebody says, yeah, listen to the crazy clown. He goes, I'm not, I'm not crazy. And he (laughs) looks at him with this like serious face, you know, like why so serious? Well, that's why right there, because that moment to me said, don't mess with him. Yeah. Because what he says, he's, he's, he is serious. And to me, Heath Ledger just, I think what he brought to that role was a sense of saying, look, you can act crazy, but you know that there's a sense of planning, a sense of very meticulousness to what he's doing. And that's kind of what, what we, you know, when we, when we were talking about this idea of having a, having a set of rules, I think he did. I think he had a sadistic set of rules that he followed in order to be able to continue to stay in control of the situation. Um, the, the moment that I felt like he lost control was when it's, it's a great facial expression he makes when nobody on the ferry, uh, blows up the, you know, they, they don't go through with it and you see the expression on his face, like what just happened? And then he makes a joke, like, I guess I have to do this myself, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. which is completely in character for him. But, the ambiguity of his past, I think, helps support the the fear that I, as an audience member, had towards him as a character in that in those moments. Right. Yeah, and I think for me, you know, you were talking about the scene where you really feared him, started fearing him the most. I think for me, it's probably the pool hall scene where mm-hmm. he walks in. And uh, he, he breaks a pool stick in half and he just throws it on the ground as he's walking out. And he makes these three guys fight to the death with one pool stick. And he just, he says, makes some, you know, quip about, you know, the winner joining his crew, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we don't even, we don't get to see the battle. We just see these three guys have to kind of look at each other and consider what they just realize is about to happen. Right. With these these this pool stick there, and for me it it really captured the the fear factor of him because it was the first time that he was not he he was not doing anything himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he was really just and and before you know he'd he'd secretly had the guys kill each other during mm-hmm. during the heist, but never never pitted them face to face man mano y mano and said okay one of you one or two of you lives and the others die and you know you get to join my crew so have fun kill your best friend i mean essentially that's what he's doing and so when he did that it took it to a whole nother level for me because it was like all right it's not just about how dangerous he is as a person and as his own you know reactive decision making it's his ability to turn people against each other yeah, and make them he's, fight it out, which is which right. is ultimately he, almost foreshadowing of what ends mm-hmm. up taking place with Batman and Dent. Right. I mean, he's a he's a master manipulator, and yes, yes, he, he know he knows how he he knows how to 
it's almost like he's being psychological in his tactics. Like he knows what buttons to press. He knows how to get, I mean, again, going back to that press conference, I mean, he had convinced these people of Gotham that Batman was bad, that he essentially caused all this and that he was, might've been the lesser of two evils, but he was still evil. Um, and even later on, you know, he's having that conver- having a conversation with Batman, trying to, you know, manipulate him as well. Just before the, the scene where Batman goes after Rachel and and Harvey, and he just, I think that's what scares me the most about his character and about people that have the ability to mess with the minds of their victims, because when you get it's and and I think this is echoed in the restraint that. Nolan uses in terms of what he shows us and what he doesn't. So he doesn't show us the result of the pool hall scene. Right. Doesn't show us people step, you know, he does the whole thing, like want to see a magic trick, but he doesn't show us the gore of where that pencil goes. I'm Um, glad. I'm glad. And I am too. I mean, mostly for sensitive, you know, stomach issues, but also because of the fact that we're left to kind of use our psychological side, our imagination to kind of, think about what that was now of course there are times when you know the joker just you know with his Mm semi-automatic pistol does his thing or the explosions with the you know the car chase scene or whatever so there's a i mean there's there's definitely big action sequences but i love the fact that it's almost like nolan (laughs) nolan says this through the joker he goes you know why i use knives because they're not quick because you can get right up in the face of somebody and because they're slow and because, you know, shooting is so, you know, it's so non-personal. Um, and again, I don't think Chris Nolan is saying that he wants to kill people, but I'm saying I think that's how he tells stories is that he wants it to be a slow, thought out, in your face, intimate moment when he creates an idea or when he tells a story or, or what he's doing. And he does that in his other films. And I think that's what gravitates me towards him as a, as a fan is that he has this ability to be close with his audience right. by being close with his characters and the Joker in the sadistic way that he does, does that very well. Yeah. I think this one has some really good humor too. Uh, in this mm-hmm. film, the, the Joker, there's something I noticed for the first time ever this time. And that was, there's a, a roadblock at one point that is meant to divert, uh, Harvey Dent's police escort and it's a fire truck on fire that's the roadblock <laughs> like i mean that is that is a quintessential joker sense of humor and, and there's no attention drawn to it mm-hmm. it's just there and i love that subtlety um there's a moment where batman says he doesn't need help and crane says not what i think and it's it's just <laughs> it's just like clearly these these little little moments these little things that are that are constantly happening. Um, right. That it gives you these, they're never, they're never jokes. They're never, they're never jokes in the sense of like laugh track funny. Mm-hmm. It's, it's witty or clever mm-hmm. that, that makes you kind of chuckle. Yeah. Um, and well, there are two that, there are two yeah. specifically that, 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 and maybe you'll mention them. I don't know, but there are two that involve uh, ledger when he's um, one is when he's trying to, 
light the last uh, explosion for the for the hospital. Yeah, and it doesn't go off. And I think that was unprompted. I've I've I heard that, that that was actually yeah that was improv that that, that the, was improv that it didn't actually go off and he just didn't know what to do and he was messing with it. Yeah, and the other one was just after, um, just after he gets. It's after the big car chase scene. And he's on the he's on the ground and he trips over his foot, and when he falls over, he pulls the trigger on his gun, <laughs> and it starts firing off bullets just randomly. <laughs> just to me, I mean, that's and he's just just staggering, like oh gosh, you know, oh, yeah. what's going on, you know, and, <laughs> and just moments like that that may or may not have been improv, but they fit perfectly in that film and, and provided that that just that right amount of humor to just kind of go, Oh oh gosh. (laughs) Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It breaks up some of that seriousness that you're, Mm -hmm. you're really dealing with these heavy questions and these heavy ideas. So I I know we probably got to wind down here. The last thing I, I wanted to mention was kind of just back to that whole, who is the best Batman conversation? The reasons there are so many iconic things in this movie and, and just these moments with this Batman and with Bale being this Batman, it, it, we have the, the bat cycle the, the first time that, you know, it comes popping out of the, the Batmobile. It's just like this incredible wow moment. Um, and then there was one that really struck me during this, this viewing of the film too, where um, during the, I forget the benefit dinner for Harvey when the Joker is, has taken over and taken everybody hostage and Bruce is, you know, trying to get, a, get away and go get his suit. And he, he takes out these thugs as Bruce Wayne in this hallway and he <laughs> picks up this shotgun. I think it's a shotgun. He picks up this shotgun and he just, as he's walking down the hall, power walking is just dismantling this gun and he's not looking <laughs> exactly. at it. He's staring dead ahead. And it reminded me of like, Keanu Reeves and John Wick and the way that he had to train to be able to shoot all of the different weapons in, in a way that like looks just amazing. Bale did that same thing, but when he breaks this weapon down, like he never breaks concentration. He's staring dead ahead and at a full brisk, you know, power walk, just quick, choo, 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 doom. And it's, it's, it's in pieces. And it's yeah, like, Oh my God. I was like, wow. Okay. Because that's a Batman thing to me. Like that's a, that's an above and beyond Batman thing. That's a, okay, he's special. He, he's, he's expert, you know, at mm-hmm. these, these things. And so I love that stuff. And I think my argument for why he's the best Batman comes down to this. I do not think that you can separate the performance from the film. I think that you can't just view the performance in a vacuum. Because the performance is made relative to the writing and relative to the story and relative to the supporting cast. And because of that, his role as Batman is perfect. And for me, it's the best because he works perfectly with all of those elements that are around him. Mm -hmm. I I could tell you I love things about Batfleck. I love things about Michael Keaton's Batman. But I can't take those Batmans and put them in Christopher Nolan's story and say that's the best Batman because it wouldn't be mm-hmm. I needed Bale in this story does that make sense <laughs> it does I mean I don't completely agree but I get it and I and I, I, I see how it does make sense to me yeah so I mean if you want my opinion I 
I do. I love I love him as Bruce Wayne. Okay. I mean, he is he is a great playboy. I think, and to agree with you, I think what he does is he contrasts those two characters so well to keep that identity so secret. Um, for instance, the scene where he uses the cover of the Russian ballet uh, yacht trip um, to end up going to China. You know, so he's you know he he hires out the entire Russian ballet models or whatever, and there's a great little dialogue between him and Alfred um, about, are you going to be okay here? He goes, I'll be just fine, master. Yeah, yeah whatever. And, and we get the quick shot, too, of the newspaper. It just say, it's, I actually wrote this down, it says, billionaire absconds with entire Russian ballet, and the look right. that Rachel gives is so classic. Just giving that, like, shake of the head, like, like, oh my god. Uh, Bruce. Because she knows who he is. I mean, and mm-hmm. so it's just one of the things where and so as 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 a contrast to those two characters, I think he is probably my favorite Bruce Wayne. I think he he does, um, he, he does some great detective work. You know, he's very smart, very athletic. I mean, he's very believable for sure. Um, I, I think, and I joke about this, but I think the one small nitpicky thing is his voice when he becomes Batman. Like, it's so over the top. Like, I'm not wearing hockey pants. You know, it's just this, this guttural, like, throat cancer guy. And... I just I giggle every time he talks because he's trying to have a conversation with Gordon at one point, and I'm like, "Can you not just scale it back just a tad?" Right. Um, and but again, I can support that because of the fact that he's trying to, as a character, he's trying to create as much dissonance between these two lives that he's portraying. So in no way did it distract me. I just felt like if I'm going to pick a Batman before before Affleck came along. And of course, he's got that guttural thing too, but it's like electronically driven or whatever. <laughs> um, Michael Keaton was my favorite because he—he's my first iteration of Batman on the big screen, and um, he's always going to be my favorite. But I think Christian Bale—I think he brings the two and blends them in contrast to each other the best. I think you mm-hmm. can—you definitely don't think of Bruce Wayne when you see him in the bat suit, whereas. You know, with Michael Keaton, I do. I mean, I know it's bat. I know it's Bruce Wayne in the bat suit, as opposed to this guy. Yeah, um, it's so good I, stuff, I mean, I, I, I love his performance. It's great. It's good. Well, do you have anything else that we've missed or not hit on so far? I'm sure we've missed a ton of stuff, but well, I don't have true. anything off the top of my head. You know. All yeah, right. So I think I think we should just move right into the connecting point. All right. I feel well, like we need like a theme though, like the connecting point. Um, okay. <laughs> it's the final connecting point. All right. We should <clears throat> stop moving on the connecting point for <sighs> me. I will start, uh, the big scene that we have not talked at all about that. Uh, I'm sure listeners, you're all just like, what the heck do you guys not even going to really go into this? It's the fairy scene. And, and for me, it is, I mean, it, sometimes, sometimes this happens in a movie where the, what the majority rule might say, that's my connecting point. It, it really is. And I, I would wager that if we took a vote, uh, a lot of people would say this was the moment that they had the most emotional impact or, or the most thoughtfulness. Um, for me, the reasons that I would say the fairy scene are the fact that the Joker has this belief that people are inherently selfish and that they want to save themselves and only themselves. And it's battling against Batman's belief in their goodness. 
right? And I mean, it kind of that that tend ties more toward the whole like take your mask off, or I'm going to kill a person every day, threat. But it still goes down to the Joker just believing that people are going to make the wrong choice. You mentioned it earlier that he was shocked, he was actually surprised when they don't do it. But I love the way this scene takes place and how we have this large criminal who takes the detonator from the warden and tosses it over the side. And then he walks over and starts praying with some other inmates. And then conversely on the other boat, we have this white collar professional who acts like he's this big, bad, like I'm, I'll do it. You know, I've got the balls. Nobody else does. And ultimately he can't do it either. (laughs) And, and, and he kind of just, he sighs in, in defeat to his own, you know, inability to go that far. And I love that there's this playing against stereotypes that's going on on these two boats, of course, because, you know, when I first saw this movie, I remember thinking for sure that the criminal boat would obviously be the one that's going to blow up the other boat. I mean, that's what we're supposed to believe. And yet we see these guys huddle in prayer and literally like the biggest, baddest guy on that boat taking the thing and throwing it over the side saying, we're not going to do this. A little man named Tiny Liston. That's right. Exactly. Um, And so for me, I think this is the scene that makes everything Batman does worth it. And that's, that's how I would sum it up. It proves to me that there is some hope for humanity left, not only in Gotham, but in, in our world, because I think that that's what this is meant to mirror. It's meant to mirror what, we believe might happen in the situation in real life. And and I would like to believe that if this occurred right now in my hometown of Seattle, we have fairies. If two fairies got hijacked and this exact scenario played out, I would like to believe that neither one would pull that trigger. And so it is a big time connecting point for me. And it gives to like I said, it, I think it gives reason or gives, it gives value and gives, uh, worth to the fact that Batman is fighting because he believes that people will make this choice. And so, yeah, yeah. so that's, that's the one that, that I really, really resonate the most with every time I watch it. There's that hope that I think we get a glimpse of and it's, in it's, you know, most probably subtle way as it can in this film. Um, I mean, it wasn't subtle, but you know, that's probably something that, um, again, it's just, I love it. I love the, that theme of hope that exists in the midst of that darkness. It's it's very cool. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, the the fairy scene was fantastic, and I thought about it, and there were a number that I that I was really wrestling with. There were several with there was one with with Alfred and Bruce, and, and there was one with uh, you know with Rachel and Bruce, and but the one that I went with uh, was the the interrogation scene. You know, oh, with, like Joker. Yeah. You mean this one? Why do you want to kill me? I, uh, you, you, you mind uh, saying that one more time? Why do you want to kill me? What, what, um... Why do you want to kill me? I said, why do you want to kill me? Um, I, I, uh, I don't know if it's just me, but I, uh, 
can't understand what you're saying. Nope, still, still, uh, still just guttural sounds to my ears. Okay, um, we're, we're obviously having some failure of communication. I, um, I'm not picking up words. Okay. Not, not gonna help the hitting. Look, I, I can't, I don't even know if that was a question or, or a declarative statement. I'm not joking. I can't, I really can't understand anything that you are saying. Nothing. Have you, have you been to the doctor lately? Because I think you may have a very severe case of throat cancer. I don't have throat cancer. There's nothing in the English language that sounds anything like that. Are you are you speaking bat? Is that what bat sounds like? Oh god. I'd really I'd really like to answer your questions. I just I don't know what they are. You are not speaking anything any human can understand. Am I crazy here? Okay, I know I'm crazy, but I I know I can't understand anything that you're saying. So why don't oh, just sound it out? Come on. Enunciate. 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 Do you know what that means? It's not. It has nothing to do with physical contact. How do you even communicate with anybody? I can't. There's no words coming out of his mouth. Am I right? There's no. There's there there's fists coming out. Do you see what it sounds like? Just tell me if it's a noun. A verb. Just give me, give me something to work with here. Write it on a piece of paper. I don't. I can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> See, I mean, <laughs> you just, you, you can't get away from it. It's terrible. It's just, that's not terrible. But people, people know that the voice is just, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, that, that's not the scene you were talking about. Why so serious, bro? <laughs> it's close. It close. It's close. Okay, <laughs> it doesn't fine. quite have the same impact that fine. my connecting points. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about your interrogation scene then. The the one that I was actually referring to came from the actual film, and not from the YouTube library. Um, and the thing that I really enjoyed about it, the thing that I I, I really connected with was the irony of the Joker being this definition of crazy. You know what's going on in his head was speaking the most sane thing to Bruce throughout the entire movie. He says, he says, don't talk like one of them. You're not, even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak like me. They need you right now. When they don't, they'll cast you out. See, their morals, their code, it's a joke. It will drop at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. That last line, they're only as good as the world allows them to be, got me thinking as an audience, uh, as a spectator in this, in this film going, I think that challenges us. And I think the Joker is, is, a ch is, is challenging me specifically to look at why I act and believe the way I do mm. and why I function in the world the way I do and where the inconsistencies are, like how I can respond to one person this way and respond to another person another way and why there's inconsistencies there. And because he challenges those inconsistencies uh, in our lives and the motives, we, we should take that to heart. 
I mean, and this is me just preaching to myself saying it. I need to take that to heart to realize that I, I think the biggest value that I can provide the world is to be consistent, not only in, in the way in which I behave, the way in which I think, the way in which I treat everyone, but this idea of presenting a sense of, of, of constant, a consistency of, of every day people are going to know that I am this person and that there's nothing that's going to fundamentally change about who I am as a person and they can trust that. And I think trust is really what he's getting at is the fact that, look, these guys are going to drop you because you fit their mold right now. But when things get hard, they're going to either blame you, they're going to cast you out, and you're going to be just a little plaything that was good for the time. And I think that the value that that he's going against about humans is that we have the capacity to be good, as as the fairy scene really just articulates visually and contextually. But he's also saying that we have the capacity to be trusted as people, yeah. that we can be consistent enough with each other to, you know, to form these good, deep friendships and deep communities or whatever of, of just trusting each other and being able to, you know, ironically be vulnerable with one another. And I think that's, that's something that I took away from this film of saying, look, the friendships that I have, the community of people that I hang out with, I need to be that. I need to be that consistent person so that they can trust me anytime to know that I'm always going to be that same person, that, that, you know, solid guy or whatever it is that I'm defined by. And, uh, it just, again, it makes me laugh that the most heartfelt message comes from the guy that's probably the most sadistic in this entire movie. <laughs> yeah. So, even if he's not necessarily intending it to lead toward those revelations. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. This is yeah, so good, man. I, it, I seriously, I, I could not be more surprised by how good this was mm-hmm. in retrospect. It was, it's a film I have in my you know, pretty high in my top 50. I'd say, I think it's in my top 25 even. And I've often kind of looked back and gone, Oh, you know, is that, was that just in the moment hype or something? What was I thinking? Like I just have a comic book movie up there that high, eh, probably just, you know, going with the flow, but really, really there's a reason. And it's because it's unlike most comic book movies. It's right. so much deeper. There's so much more going on. It's not just the cool effects and superhero stuff and quippiness that we get these days, uh, four five, six, seven, eight times a year. Well, you, uh, you got anything else you want to say before we wrap it up, brother? No, man. I've pretty much said all I need to at all least right. for right now, but well, well, I need to be <laughs> good. Well, if anybody wants to reach out to us and give a, your thoughts, you can always email us at feelinfilm at gmail.com. Uh, if you would like to talk to me individually, you can find me all over the internet at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, uh, the most likely places for that. I'm a fairly heavy social media user and love to interact, so come on out and do that. I want- and you can you can catch me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S, on the Twitter machine. You can also catch me at Facebook.com slash Shoeless Patch. Uh, or on my website, thisispatch.com. If you want to catch uh, anything about the show, check us out at feelinfilm.com. We have our episodes up there, some blog entries. We've got a couple of uh, new contributors that are uh, helping us out on the show, dropping some reviews and um, just some other movie-related 
things like that. We're pretty excited about them. Yeah, yeah, we are. We've got uh, Don Shanahan from uh, Every Movie Has a Lesson doing a, a weekly column on things we've learned that week. Uh, and then we have uh, Steve Clifton, who's who's writing some articles for us. Uh, his re- most recent one, his first piece was on La La Land. And no, guys, I did not. Did That was not like a requirement for him to join the team. It was that he write on La La Land. He did that on his own, just so you all know. If whether you believe me or not, it's true. Um, <laughs> I do want to quickly also mention uh, once again the feel this film hashtag. That's hashtag feel this film. You can use that on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, February tenth is when that poll is going to go up. It will be up for a few days, uh, and then the first feel this film episode we'll be looking for that somewhere around February the nineteenth or the twentieth. Uh, so you have until February the 10th. I'm telling you that because we're getting sort of close and we've seen some awesome uh, recommendations start to be posted. But what we're going to do with the feel this film uh, group is we're going to take all of those recommendations and suggestions. We're going to narrow it down and we're going to post a full a poll in our Facebook group. And anybody that is a member of the Facebook group is an open group. Anybody can join it. So all of those that are in the group will vote and whichever ones get the highest amount of votes will become our Feel This Film listener picks for uh, those episodes. And the first one, like I said, will be February the 19th or 20th, whichever day it was. I, I need to look at a calendar. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. so We'll record on the 19th, but we'll drop it on the 20th. Something like that. There you go. So, uh, yeah. Please participate. We we love all the recommendations so far. Keep Keep those coming. I think that is all we've got for this episode, Patrick. We will That's be me checking the wire to make sure we're not leaving anything out and we look to be good. Yep. We'll be continuing Nolan month next week with inception, a podcast <laughs> podcast within a podcast. Get ready. <laughs> All right. Got inception. <laughs> yes, you did. All right. Well, until next time, everybody, as always, thanks for being here and uh, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.